This is episode number 26 with Jody Jenkins Place. Welcome to The Marriage Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Price, international marriage interventionist and best-selling co-author of Success Breakthroughs. On this show, I provide innovative solutions for marital success by focusing on personal development and relationship transformation. Every week, I'll be talking with thought leaders from around the world and will be providing your weekly dose of wisdom so you can catapult yourselves to marital success and true life fulfillment. I ask you to love one another, encourage and support each other, and live with passion. Are you ready? Here we go. Today, we're talking about the adolescent brain, children who have experienced trauma, what the public school system is doing to help these children in our nation, and what you parents at home can do to help foster healing and care for children under stress. I am so excited about our guest today, not just because this is a great topic and not just because she's top in her field, but because she's also a dear friend of mine. We grew up together as children in Virginia. We went to high school together, and we were even on the same cheerleading team together. We have with us today Jody Jenkins Place. She started out as a high school English teacher for 11 years. She moved up to high school administrator for 10 years, and most currently took the position in her school district as director of Phoenix Alternative Education Programs, which is a continued ed service and a non-traditional environment for students grades 6 through 12. This is a blended learning instructional model, incorporating a trauma-informed and responsive philosophy with a whole child emphasis. She recently presented at the Association of Secondary Curriculum Development National Conference on Educational Leadership. So she really is a trailblazer creating a sensitive culture through professional best practices and mindfulness for the children of our nation. Without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to Jody Place. Jody, welcome to the Marriage Show. Truly an honor to be here with you and your audience. Thank you. We're really I'm really excited to have you on today. Now I know you and your husband Dave, you're celebrating coming up your 25th wedding anniversary. Is that right? That is correct. So we are really excited and trying to decide how we're going to celebrate, but I would do it all over again if, if given the choice. So yeah, you guys are a wonderful couple and it's, it's, uh, I can't believe 25 years already. That's amazing. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you so much. The first question I like to ask all guests is what is love to you? I think that for me, love is the air we breathe, I think that everybody asks Dave and I this a lot because we have been married for 25 years. What's our secret? And I, I think it's just because we are so accepting of one another and allow each other to grow and change. And so I think that part of that with our children and with my students is that love is about an acceptance of other people, where they are and who they are and staying beside them regardless. So love can mean many things, but I think that unconditional feeling that we have where another person is going to be part of our life. 
That's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Now, you and I have talked about this subject of traumatized children in our nation. We've been talking about this quite a bit over the last year. And you've told me that it's never been more stressful to be a teenager. And I know growing up through school, I think my high school years, and maybe partly college too, but really high school years were the most stressful for me. There's just a lot of change, a lot of hormonal things going on, a lot of kind of figuring out who we are as people, who we want to be. But you've told me many times this past year that it's never been more stressful to be a teenager than it is right now. Why, why do you believe this? Why do you say that? I base that on my own observation in public education over the last 20 years, but I also, the American Psychological Association actually did a survey um, in 2014 on the stress in America, and they found that teen stress rivals that of adults. And, you know, when we have stress that impacts so many different aspects of our life, how we sleep, our nutrition, our level of activity. And so if we think about this in terms of our brain's response to stress and not our adult perspective, and I think that I'm guilty of this, so I'm, this is not being said in any kind of judgmental way. We look at teenagers and children that we're trying to prepare them for the real world, and they don't know what stress is yet. But what they're experiencing is the same as what in terms of our brain and what's happening internally as the stress we deal with as adults in terms of the demands of having jobs and children and responsibilities. And so with these kids, I mean, they're trying to balance, you know, school and life. Um, we talk about a lot of adults not being very good at work-life balance, but students have that, have that same struggle. Social media has added, and for many of us, I'm included, I'm aging myself. I did not have to deal with the complexities of essentially living in, in two worlds at times. When I got home from school, I could, you know, kind of disconnect and students do not have that opportunity for the most part anymore. High stakes testing is, is something that I think is, is a conversation that's being had in lots of places across the nation, the impact of that. And I think there's also, and I'm glad that this is something, this conversation would, would speak to this, but there's a lot of stigma associated with having anxiety or mental health concerns. And so I think that that's changing and, and young people are able to hopefully start reaching out for help. But, you know, again, a teenager, their brain is not yet fully developed. And I think it's when I look at teenagers and we look at them through the adult eyes, our brain is fully developed. And so adolescence is the, the second most significant time of brain development. There's changes in structure and function. The only other time that there was a greater period is, is in the, the first three years of life. And I always think, consider how much tolerance and support and patience and focus on teaching we give, you know, our little children. And so I know that teenagers sometimes try to convince us they're adults. They look like adults. They speak like adults. But truly, from what's going on on the inside, they're not adults. And we have to give them all of those, those same bits of patience and desire to teach them as adolescents as we would to a two-year-old that's learning completely new concepts. What age is the human brain fully developed? Just around 25. I sometimes laugh because we have, you know, teachers who are, who are not even yet 25. And so when I teach this to 
students and I'm always careful and I go in and I'm, I co-teach with a school counselor named Alex Tate, but we always tell the students, please do not go up to your younger teachers and say, well, your brain is not fully developed either. I'm like, don't use this against them. But I mean, but it's true. And this is where, you know, in terms of that development, we do teach students. And I think that's an important part about not only us learning this as adults so that it can truly and has changed how I approach my own children and and students, but teaching it to the teenager themselves so they have a greater self-awareness. But you know, your prefrontal cortex, that that part in, in the, the front of your head is not fully formed. And that's where decision making and complex thinking and emotional regulation, which is a kind of key point of this conversation, are not at the same place that we as adults are. And so I don't know, Jennifer, I guess we've known each other for a long time, but I always ask my audiences, have you ever been asked by your parent or have you as a parent ever asked your child? what were you thinking? Of course, of course. I heard that all the time. (laughs) Right. And pretty pretty much an entire audience will nod their head because they've either heard it or said it to their own teenager. Yeah. I definitely said that to my child once uh, (laughs) freshman year in college, he made a little goof up, nothing, you know, too serious, but a little goof up. I said, what were you thinking? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he was the exception, but when I've asked that to my children or when I was asked that, there's this really stunned silence. And from an adult perspective, that can very quickly look like defiance or they're, you know, why are they not answering me or they don't have a good reason or they have no reason. And I think what we need to remember is in that moment, they can easily be overwhelmed. Again, not just not because of they're your child or they don't want to answer you, but truly the science of what is going on in their brain at that moment, they're compromised and can be easily overwhelmed. And so that question, although and that's from an adult perspective, we want a very quick answer and explanation, just knowing that in that moment, truly, they might not be able to answer that question because of where they are in their emotional regulation and what is chemically happening in their brain. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. He looked at me like a deer in headlights, just eyes glazed over. He didn't say anything. He looked absolutely confused and stunned. And it took him a while. Yeah. And then and then now years later, going back talking about it, he said, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I don't think I was thinking. <laughs> you know? and, and the thing is, is that's, that's truth. That's, that's honesty in that moment. It's hard to hear that because, again, we come to it from the perspective of an adult where we could give an explanation or we can say that we weighed out the consequences, but that's not what's happening, you know, in our child. And again, it's kind of like, just imagine that they're a two-year-old, although they're in like a 16-year-old body, but knowing it's not that they don't want to answer that question they just might not be able to answer that question. And it's not out of disrespect or defiance. They truly can't figure out why they made that decision. Yeah, I I think it's similar to, you know, brain function in men. It's like a lot of times, and there's a lot of studies to back this up, but women tend to process emotions so much faster than men. And so women can be experiencing high emotion 
and be able to be very eloquent verbally about it. We can explain ourselves, we can talk through it, we can tell you in the moment what we're feeling and why. And men have that deer, you know, deer in headlights glazed over expression on their face where they look stunned, they look confused, and they can't speak. And it's because when the the male human brain is experiencing high emotion, they cannot verbalize it as well in the moment. They have to allow the emotions to calm down first, then their brain goes through a processing period, and then they're able to come back and talk about it. And so, you know, this is something that I'm constantly teaching married couples is that, you know, women are ready to talk about it in the moment. Men need to kind of go off, think about it, process, come back and speak later. And if more women could understand this and practice this, there'd be so much less fighting, less hurt feelings and so forth in marriage. But it sounds like the the adolescent brain, male and female, is very much still in this place. And so parents just need to understand that children might need to take an hour or two or even maybe a day or so to think about something, process it, and then come back and have a conversation later. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. And I think I love what you're saying. And I think that's where we're talking about just emotional regulation and when you're talking about, you know, the, the dynamic between, you know, a married couple, it's, it's all about the perception of threat. And I use that word and I can kind of talk a little bit more about that, but our brains are beautifully created to help us survive. And so, you know, a long time ago when there were more physical threats and, and issues of survival, your brain and quite frankly, like anxiety would give you the ability to potentially survive more easily. It kicks into a mode that is going to try to, to serve your best interest against, you know, being attacked by a predator. Are you talking um, fight or flight here? Fight or flight. I am talking about fight or flight. And so sometimes in, in the moment, like women, or is it as an adult talking to a child, you're not intending to be a threat. You certainly aren't. And we look at threat and like, I'm not threatening, but that's not how your, your brain is responding. Your brain may respond to the psychological stressors just as if they were being chased by a bear. What is happening from a very scientific perspective is in that moment, they can't have those conversations because they've gone into what's called a, a survival brain. And the same thing is true when you have an adult who a student may be facing you know, real trouble, they, they've made a mistake, and their brain in that moment is going to a threat mode. And it doesn't say it's, it's not your intent to be a threat, you're a loving parent. I'm never intending to be a threat, but, but a brain might see it the same way. You know, even at work, you get a, a nasty email, that stressor is going to chemically have a reaction. And, and I think it's just interesting to look at the term threat and see that it encompasses more than maybe what one very traditionally thinks of as in terms of threat, in, in terms of how our brain reacts. The brain is so fascinating. I love, I love talking about it. I love learning about it. With all the talk right now of threats and stresses, what are the most common stressors that you're seeing in children in the school system today that's, that is causing them to be in fight or flight and causing them to maybe not concentrate as well at school or to have behavioral or emotional problems in school, what are the current stressors? And I just wanted to give some great resources. I am not a neuroscientist. 
I am not a psychologist. And I think there's comfort in that, hopefully for the audience. These are things that I've learned in my capacity working with students in education, but also just as a mom. And so, you know, of course I heard about adolescent brain research when I was in college, but it was theory then. I only when I revisited as a parent and started being able to apply it did it did it start resonating. And one of the things Dr. Dan Siegel is is an amazing resource and you can find so much on him on online and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, they wrote a, a book called The Whole Brain Child. And they talk about the upstairs and downstairs brain. And I like that concept so much because it's really easy to think about in a moment of stress as an adult for, for teenagers, they get it. But think about it this way, Jennifer, your upstairs brain is when you're healthy, you're able to learn, you're emotionally regulated. That's where you're, you know, you're feeling empathetic, you can make connections. If you have a perceived threat, which could be disappointing someone, worrying that you're going to be rejected by your peers, by someone that you have a strong relationship, failure. So we talk about the the stakes associated with academics. So you're getting ready to take a high stakes test and, and you're worried about your performance on that. The stressors of social media, again, that creates a whole nother dynamic. So that perceived threat could put you what's called in your downstairs brain. And that's when you are in the fight, flight, or freeze mode and you're learning compromised. So from the standpoint of looking at this, a lot of times when you know your child has a big test that they're really worried about, just know trying to put things in place. And this is what I'm advocating for in in education, looking at students and seeing there are, are definitely their behavior is not looking at them as simply being purposeful or deliberate or malicious to hurt or anger you, but that it's a form of communication. I say this all the time and and I have to live this in my own life. I have three children and my eldest is especially strong-willed and it's very, very personal what we are doing as parents, as educators, very personal, but we can't take everything personally. And so I always, with students, I oftentimes, even though they're saying something to me that's hurtful. I often look at it as really, I need to figure out what they're trying to communicate to me. And if I look at it as fight or flight, as opposed to defiance or disrespect, how I approach it can be greatly altered. And it helps me stay in what's called my upstairs brain. It helps me stay very grounded and not reactive. It helps me stay in a place where I can teach Because I think in that moment, I mean, you know, stress can be contagious. I mean, I don't know if anybody else out there, but, you know, if if my daughter is stressed and he starts ratcheting up, then sometimes I can easily cause me to ratchet it up. But from the adult, we're, we're the ones who have to stay and be the ones that help them regulate. We're, we're going to lend them our developed brain, right? Yeah, we, it's important to stay calm and stable so that we can be the stability in their lives. And I think it's important to remember, too, that a lot of times, just like in marriage, when someone acts out in a particular way, it very, very rarely has anything to do with you. It, it has something to do with what they're going through, what they're, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing. It has very little to do with you. And so I think that if parents... You know, just like in marriage, if parents can 
take on this mindset that, you know, this child is, is, you know, seems to be acting out for whatever reason. It doesn't have anything to do with the parent or the child, you know, feeling disrespectful towards them. They just, they can't regulate. They can't control themselves as well as adults. And so they're just acting out. And I, I like what you said. It's more important to try to figure out really what's going on inside them. And all of these, all these stressors you were mentioning are just like normal everyday life, but then throw on top of that children born into poverty, children who are experiencing, you know, their parents separating and divorce, if there's any form of family abuse, I know the the impact on these children is going to be heightened uh, tenfold, you know? And a huge part of my work is advocating for trauma informed and trauma responsive communities. And there's a, a whole huge amount of information regarding the impact of trauma And so a lengthy conversation, but to boil it down, students who are experiencing trauma, and again, those are the things that you mentioned, and you can look up adverse childhood experiences. They're called ACEs, and and people may have heard of those, and they're specifically related to to trauma with children. But essentially, when in all of us that we've talked about, children who have or are experiencing adverse childhood experiences they may reside more in their downstairs brain. They may be in more of a constant and chronic state of survival brain. So if you layer a adolescent brain and then a brain that's been experiencing or has experienced trauma, then I mean, you can imagine how that layering of factors, just from, again, a neuroscience perspective, makes it very, very challenging for those children to communicate, to be regulated, to learn. Again, think about this is that part of your brain that's compromises your your ability to focus and to learn and to concentrate. So it's definitely going to impact so many aspects of, of a child's life. So if a parent, you know, they come home and they didn't do well on the test. And again, this is not about not expecting accountability. I mean, we want our children to do well academically, we want them to do well socially, behaviorally. Um, but it is in terms of trying to look at the behaviors as what are they communicating? So maybe they didn't do well in the test because there are things that are going on in their life that made them learning compromise. So what can we do to help them have skills to regulate in those moments? Because stress is a part of life, an important part of life, but you know, there's you know, discipline and this is I'm disciplined as a mom, discipline as an administrator the, the root of the word discipline is pupil. And so really it's about teaching and learning and not just stopping a behavior. I mean, there's discipline and punishment are not the same. So I think most of us as parents, as an educator, we want to have discipline because we want to teach. We want to build skills. And again, that's the yes brain is by is by Dr. Tina Payne Grayson and, and she goes into great depth about that and I and I have gained so much from from reading her works. But just think of discipline again. And sometimes we we start blending those two, right? We we want to give the consequence and we think that coming down partially is going to teach the lesson, but the teaching and the learning and when we can do that that matters the most. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So you and Dave have three children of your own. You've been working in the public school, public education for over 20 years. What are lessons that you've learned that you want parents listening today to really walk away understanding 
what are some things that you really want them to deeply understand so that they can turn around and use this in their own communication and their own relationships with their own children that would be beneficial? I'm still learning. I have a daughter, as I said, and who's very strong-willed and in college, one who is just starting high school and another in elementary school. And so, you know, I'm, I'm learning lessons every single day. I think that first and foremost, I am doing this myself is modeling emotional regulation. And that, that just means that we have to teach it by demonstrating it. So we talk about the upstairs, downstairs brain. I always use the analogy of like a horror movie and what happens in horror movies when somebody goes to the basement and then somebody goes to check on them, right? It's not usually a good scenario. So we're trying to help our children find the steps to get back upstairs with us, not going down there with them. You know, nothing, nothing good can come from losing your cool. So you have to, to show them how in a very tough time or interaction, how you regulate. They learn from that by watching you and seeing that. So I literally visualize helping lead my children up a set of steps. And I'll often, you know, it's a kind of a common language in our house and in my school is, okay, I feel like I'm going downstairs. And so having that awareness and and being able to share that with, with our young people, but the key is just not to go down there with them. I think the other thing is timing is everything. We often want to have those conversations again, and I talked about that earlier so quickly. And I think it's important to know that it's okay to give time. Another great, great resource is Dr. Bruce Perry. He's one of my favorites, but he talks about you regulate, then relate, and then you reason. And as parents, teachers, we sometimes make the mistakes of wanting to talk and process and get answers and information very quickly, often with good intent because we want to help or problem solve or give them support, but their brain is not able to handle that yet. Sometimes we are not in that place to handle it yet, but, but adolescents surely aren't. And we want to give them the life lesson right then and there. And again, if we talk about them being learning compromise, they can't hear that lesson then. They can hear, they, there for sure is a time for them to, to gain a lesson from it and, and to discuss the accountability they might have to have but it's about when is that the most effective time? And it's certainly not when they're in survival brain. So I think it's just, again, kind of stepping back and realizing they look like adults in many cases. And again, my, at least my two older children try to convince me they're adults all the time, but, but they're not. Children just should not be responsible to help adults regulate emotion. We often confuse this with teaching empathy, that we share what they're doing to our feelings. And just think about that from the perspective of what that's doing to their brain when we place those burdens on a child of what they're doing to us as adults. There's a great book called Unselfie, which of course, you know, like selfies are everywhere, but it, it talks about sort of teaching empathy. And so I just think it's timing in timing there's, there's lessons to be learned, but sometimes we have to be a little bit more patient about when the children are, are able to and can listen to those. I think we need to know ourselves. We're not perfect as much as we as parents sometimes want to try to be. And I tell my firstborn, because she sometimes, you know, will make comments about how I 
parent, you know, her siblings. And I said, your dad and I, you know, are making all the great mistakes on you because you are, you're the first. So, you know, she laughs, but I've learned over the years to acknowledge my own triggers, what, you know, and what times of the day, you know, I'm a morning person. My daughter is not. So in the morning when I'm all ready to have this conversation or to process something or, and she's snappy, again, it feels personal, but I don't take it personally because we're, we're not at the same place. So I do know my own triggers and how I respond to stress. I mean, adults go into survival brain too. That's why a huge piece of this in my school and in my life is self-care and incorporating mindfulness. So that's something we're trying to teach students more about. It's something I talk to my children about. We just don't take care of ourselves as much as we should because we feel like we don't have time. We don't, maybe we don't feel like we have energy. And so I think expanding our understanding of mindfulness is a first step. I took a great class this summer on mindfulness from Sherry Clower and expanded my mind because I was like, I don't have time to go sit in a room for 30 minutes every day. And, but that's not what mindfulness is. So I think there's a lot of conversation going on in our society about, about mindfulness and and self-care, which is fabulous. Yeah, I think so too, because I think so many, so many parents, whether it's mother or father, we feel like we have to do everything. And we also feel like, you know, we have to take care of our spouse. We have to take care of our children. We have to take care of our job. Last on the list is usually ourself. And I think this is doing so much harm to, to everyone in the world, because if you yourself are not taken care of, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be creative. You're not going to be as energetic and resourceful. You're not going to be as patient with yourself, with your spouse, with your children. And so it's one thing that I really am constantly preaching to my, to my clients and, and we're implementing in their lives is upping their level of self-care, you know, go for a massage, go have tea or lunch with your friends, do something away from your family, away from your children, whether it's meditating or reading, find something that you enjoy that's like soul food to you. Because if you're happier and you're taken care of, you're going to take better care of the people around you. You know, it's just like on airplanes. You know, they always tell you that if, if, if there's an emergency of any sort, put the oxygen mask on you first and then on your child or the person beside you. Because if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of others. So I think that's really beautiful. And I love what you said about yeah. about yeah. coming from yeah. your child's point of view as well. Because I think not, not so many parents do that anymore. I think we live in a society where we expect more and more from our children. And, and we expect it sooner and earlier in life. There's a tremendous amount of pressure on children to perform perfectly in every area of their life. And it's creating an undue amount of stress on children, I think. And I think parents are, you know, there's some hypocrisy going on as well because parents can lash out and, you know, they can say things they don't mean, but then they expect their children to walk a very fine line. And I think if more parents would stop and accept within themselves, you know, perfectionism is, is, is you know, something that many people claim to suffer from. And I think that that's also driving parents to want their children to be perfect. And I love all the work by Brene Brown on perfectionism and, and how really yes, yes. perfectionism is nothing more than extreme insecurity in yourself because you care 
way too much about what other people think of you instead of really concentrating more on who you are as a person and enjoying your life. And and so I think that that's, that's also kind of playing, you know, at least from what I'm seeing, you know, with all the clients that I work with too, there's just this crazy amount of pressure that's being put on children, especially in the teenage years, to perform perfectly in everything they do or else they're wrong or they're not good enough or they're going to fail at something. So I love what you said about about really taking the perspective of the child, you know, what looking at it through their lens and as a parent rising above having the upstairs brain, as you like to call it. And, you know, some people would say, just be the bigger person, you know, whatever terminology you like, but just to understand that as parents, we need to be more compassionate and more empathetic and more understanding and be that calm, steady in the storm of your child's life. You know, I I love everything you've said today. Good stuff, Jody. Good stuff. (laughs) I love the work that you're doing in the world. and, And I believe that the children of our nation are so blessed to have you fighting for them and working with them and all of your colleagues, everyone who is working in the school systems to help children learn how to navigate stress and life better. Before we go, I do have a couple of fun questions for you. First up, what is your favorite book? Well, so you know I'm an English major, so that is like just the hardest question (laughs) ever. for you to ask me, I'm like, would you like to go by genre? <laughs> <laughs> to, to be honest, you know, I always go back to one of the first books that gave me an emotional reaction. And that's where the red fern grows. And the reason I always say that book is, is, you know, not because, you know, that storyline is, is significantly profound, but it was the first book where I recognized the power of words, because I cried so deeply in that book. And I thought, these words, these pages are evoking this, how amazing is it that somebody can put words on a page that evokes so much emotion? And, and so that sort of led me to ultimately wanting to be uh, in education and an English teacher. And so I always reference that book because I think it was one of the first times that I had like the total ugly cry. And I thought, these are words on a page. How can I be having this reaction? But they seem so real um, and I can visualize so clearly. So uh, yeah, that's, that's what I excellent book. Excellent book. How about a favorite quote or a life motto? I have two that I kind of work hand in hand and they're my kind of personal mantra. And one is all will be well. And I, I try to remember that even on in the toughest situation on the toughest day that there is purpose. And then be still is my other favorite. Um, they're very short and, and I have much longer, you know, more elaborate quotes. I love quotes. I have quotes up everywhere in, in my building and all over my life. But I think just from a very simplistic standpoint and that be still is, is also what reminds me in terms of mindfulness to be very present, to take a moment, to allow myself in that moment to, to remain calm. And again, usually what in my head, what's happening is I will say, be still then I say all will be well. Love it. Love it. Be still and all will be well. Love it. Love it. Love it. Beautiful. So Jody, thank you again so much for being with us today. Tell everyone how they can be in touch with you, learn more from you. How can they find you? So I reside on Twitter. I'm at Jody Place and I post newsletters there as well. So you can kind of see 
what I'm thinking about at that given time in that month on what my school is focused on. I would love for your audience to follow me and to message me if there's any follow-up questions or they want me to help provide any of the resources that have deeply influenced me. I've tried to mention some of them. I'm excited to be pursuing in the near future launching a blog, but I'm at Jody Place on Twitter and I've created a great network of professionals and experts and they've taught me so much about the topics I've talked about today. It's a great place to start that's not overwhelming as a as a parent and educator. It's it's been where I've I've made some really significant connections to individuals to learn more. On Twitter, it's Jody Place. It's J-O-D-I-P-L-A-C-E, correct? That's correct. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being with us today. I really appreciate this opportunity. And I, I do wish everyone wellness and to take care of themselves. It's not selfish to do that. It's selfless so you can uh, fill the cups of others. Thanks for tuning in to The Marriage Show. I appreciate the time you took to be with me today. If you love this show as much as I love making it, please subscribe, rate, and leave me a five-star review. That will allow us to inspire more people together. And if there's someone in your life that would benefit from any of the subjects we discuss here on the show, please share it with them. Text it to them, screenshot it, or email the link. Let's change lives together. Let's spread the love. Oh, and please find me on social media and tell me what subject you would like me to discuss here on the show. So head over to Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. I really would love your suggestion. And if you want to check the show notes from today's episode, you can find them at www.themarriageshow.com. And you can also listen to all of my other episodes there as well. Until next time, love one another. Love one another.